It's interesting because it's the other way around. The older you get as a writer, you get better. She was working three jobs for me. I don't know how she did. Truly great poetry comes from suggestion. Sometimes you don't have to travel half of the world to see something beautiful. Sometimes you just have to look out the window and just truly see something for what it is and appreciate it. I'll just remember that moment for the rest of my life. To be honest, I was on the verge of tears. Vulnerability as an artist is your superpower. That has caused cultural identity crisis in me. We weren't defined by our struggles. Now I know what I want to do. And I just stopped and looked around. And I just said out loud, God, you're so amazing. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Extrospective podcast. Today, I'm joined by Guy. Who are you? Well, I'm 21 years old. I'm currently a digital marketer for uh, an appliance insurance company. But my true um, passion is writing um, and to be a published author in the future. Fantastic. And for the for the viewers and listeners insight, uh, can you kind of take us back to a young gee? So I, I grew up in Fortaleza. I wouldn't say the favelas, but it was a relatively poor area uh, with my mum, single mum. And every Friday she would send my nanny uh, and she would accompany me to the cinema to, to watch films every Friday whilst my mum worked because she was super busy and didn't really have the you know, the time. The beauty of it, though, was despite it being a really poor area, the sense of community was really just strong. Um, to be honest, paramount to, to the lives of everyone because everyone knew each other and it really just kept the the struggles sort of at bay. I think it's the same with every sort of poor community, to be honest. It's really the people that give it life and make it go beyond the stereotypical commercials you see you see on the app you know on tv about you know these poor communities and lacking food or water and obviously it was that but at the same time it wasn't just that we weren't defined by our struggles by our inability to to have just normal things we were people three-dimensional people and we laughed and loved and yeah that was my childhood growing up just going to someone's house and playing football with a two-litre empty bottle of Pepsi. Um, I'm not even, that's not even a, a like a, just a random thing. To, like, it was generally that. It was just that. But the thing is, we didn't care. It was just, we were just having fun, you know, and that's, mm. that's, that's the stuff I remember. Is that really? It's just that you just discard every, you know, most of the thing, the bad things and just remember the good things. Because, you know, during that time, my mum was a single mum. She was working just so much. And my, my, my dad, well, he wasn't there. So she had to struggle and provide for me. And as a child, it's so interesting that you don't, you don't really think of that, that absence. It's just your life that, that's a really interesting insight because obviously i that's that's the first time i've heard that as well and obviously for, for context for, for those of you who didn't pick up i don't know if you mentioned it but that that was a uh, somewhere in brazil <laughs> oh fortaleza fortaleza uh up north in brazil in brazil yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just, just to get that clear um, was it in <laughs> brazilian geography isn't my isn't my strong no, that's right. no it's like honestly not many people do know where fortaleza is really? yeah, it's, it's actually really interesting to hear that you your highlight or the thing that you picked out was was the fact that you, you went to the cinema uh was it like once a week with with the nanny and tell, yeah, tell, me, just, tell me a little bit more about that yeah it was it was usually usually a friday 
from the age of three, I'm pretty sure, every Friday, I used to go to the cinema um, to watch films. And I, th- you know, I think um, that's where that passion for stories, you know, let alone films, came from. It's just that being raised at such an early age to consume stories. I guess when you're young, you just latch on to any, anything that you sort of repeat and repeat and repeat. Yeah, so, so obviously you're growing up in you're growing up in Brazil. When was it that you moved across the pond? It was when I was six. My auntie had gone uh, a couple of years prior and sent news to my mum of how great it is, it is here. And mm. my mum was like, "Well, let's go, Guy. Um, just really? you and I, uh, you, you and I to to the UK." My grandmother um, was not, not enamoured with the idea. Let's put it at that. But my mum went anyway, and. Yeah, I was six, and we lived with my auntie. And then a couple of years later, I think two or three years later, she got married. And I spent most of my childhood, sort of the male role model, the, the sort of father figure, was my uncle. I have so much, so, so much to thank um, for the way he raised me, and yeah, all of that. Sorry, I was, I was getting a bit too, but getting emotional there. Sorry, it was just yeah. Um, but yeah, that's that's um, that's the age I went. I came to England, and um, yeah, six years old, fifteen years, which I I can't help but you know say that has caused a sort of ident- cultural identity crisis in me because I'm too Brazilian to be considered English, and too English to be considered Brazilian. So it's sort of this grey area where, and it's really bad where I, you know, when a Brazilian stranger or I don't know someone who I bump into asked me are you Brazilian I almost want to say no because my Portuguese is so bad that I don't want to experience that sort of dis- disappointment you know um from them to go oh he's he's a gringo which gringo means like um a foreigner and it's so strange being considered that despite being born in the country that you are now considered to be a foreigner how did you find the difference between the culture and how did your mum sort and, and obviously your your aunt and, and uncle how did they kind of navigate you through that time well my mum while sorry whilst we were living with my auntie and uncle my mum was working three jobs that sort of gave way for my uncle and auntie to step in and fill in the gaps which I'm really forever in, indebted to them. They didn't have children until a good few years after we left. So really, I was their child. They were my parents for a good chunk of my life. And then after we had to leave, I I, get, I felt lost because these people who were there every day of my life, who were basically my parents, they had gone now and... We moved to this house, this house share, basically, of other professionals. Again, my mother was working incredibly hard for most of that time. So I really, again, I just sort of, I felt like those years, but I was really sort of pit-stopping from, you know, uh, from person to person. And I don't think, that's, I think that's really impacted in my sense of what a father figure is, I guess. I was constantly being introduced and then forced to say goodbye to them like that. That also relates to my father not being there for me. All of that, it's sort of impact, it's had this domino effect 
of just being comfortable with perpetually being left behind, I think. Yeah, which is interesting. Do you think there's any ways in which your character now has been shaped where you can definitely put your finger on it in terms of like influences that you've had or, or any of those figures that were coming and going? Are there any particular lessons or things that you've learned in a, in a positive light? My stepdad, when my mum got married to my stepdad, he or, he was very, very stringent and militant. In retrospect, I have everything to thank for him. Like he, I'm forever indebted to him. Those lessons of as simple, as simple as waking up and making your bed have had just such a massive domino effect in the, in the things I do. Do it to, you know, to, to the best of your capacity. I know it's a, it's a simple thing and it's been said many times, but it's such a powerful thing. And to just give it your all. Again, I know it's these lessons everyone's heard before but it's shaped so much the things i do writing working out um reading just to when you're doing it to give a hundred percent focus to it to not read passively to simply finish a chapter and put it down and go on with your day finish the chapter close the book and think of what that chapter meant of what happened in that chapter. And if it's one of those books, how you can apply the themes in that chapter to your life or to the things you're going through at the moment. To just engage fully with what you're doing. That's that's actually exactly what I was gonna say. Engaging and and being present. And I get and I guess you say like those things are maybe taken for granted or, or obvious things. And I'm sure many of us have heard them from either our parents or, as you say, like sort of father figures. But do you think like it's that those things are a bit more because the way you describe them and it's, it's actually one of the things I, I really love about the way you communicate and, what, and the way you think about things. Do you think that's because you're like more grateful for it because of the people that it came from when you first met your stepdad and then the, he, he kind of instilled those lessons in you? It's like he wasn't in your life and then he was. And then suddenly you're grateful for this and you find that it works and then you're just almost more grateful for it than than maybe someone like I would taking it for granted where, you know, I've, my dad's been around my whole life. I think because of my age, um, I think I was 12 at the time, my brain had developed a bit more. I sort of obviously realised sort of the dynamic of things. I think when he came into my life, I didn't really just regard him as another person who would go away. I sort of understood, okay, he's the father figure now. And because of the way he sort of delivered his lessons, the way he sort of governed me, I know it's not the best word, but that's the way I felt, I guess, at the time. Because of that, I think I latched on to what he was saying, although in a combative sense, because we really didn't get along at all he felt like an intruder because it was just my mum and I for all this time and he's like sorry who are you like I knew who's the father figure but at the same time this like seed of combativeness and curiosity of his presence bloomed of really just just being frustrated but not knowing why as to why he was doing all these things as to why oh it's a silly can thing you, but, yeah can you give any examples Yes, as to why I could only play my Xbox 
during Saturday and Sundays. Um, and I had to study from Monday to Friday as to why I had to clear the table, ask permission to leave the table. Looking back at it now, he was really caring for me. Just he wanted me to be able to respect things. For example, when you're asking permission to leave the table, it might seem as something okay, like that's a bit strange, you know, um, given sort of the, the modern society at the moment to leave the table, but it's respect, you know, it's the, the food was prepared by your mum and your father was there who provided the food to be bought in the first place. And it's really that sort of asking for permission to leave the table. It's almost like a thank you. That's why I'm so grateful. So, so grateful for what he he imparted on me because at the time it's such an easy thing to overlook but when you really pick it apart you realize he wasn't he wasn't trying to punish me he was trying to care for me in the way he only knew how to he could have easily just been the you know the father figure and said oh yeah do this do that but he really is is strictness was just another form of care it's very important and interesting to hear that because yeah as you say there's a there's a weird kind of tension between the necessity of having those boundaries and those rules which i i can definitely <laughs> account for i mean I, I didn't have like the strictest parents but my, my my parents certainly put in boundaries in terms of only going on the computer on tuesdays thursdays and saturdays and then sunday was like for church and family time and other days yeah. were for studying and even on the days I could, it was like, you know, you've got a 90 minute timer running. It's like, what is this? <laughs> All of my mates are allowed to just go on until midnight every day. Yeah. You're like, yeah, sorry, it's not nine o'clock in the evening. You've got to be off the Xbox. It's like, what do you mean? Like, I'm 14. Like, what's going on? Um, but it's, yeah. And my parents would always explain, like, almost like a never-ending loop of just them explaining that they did it because they loved me and i was like what do you mean like <laughs> i really want to do this stuff surely you should let me do what i want to do that's the exactly. best form of love and actually to abstract this out to politics which i don't, I don't want to do too much but it kind of reminds me of how you have the tension of the necessity of boundaries and kind of what's right and wrong morally and then also the the compassion and the love and the mm. thing that I really struggle with is speaking truthfully and lovingly into someone's life when that could be quite challenging and actually it, it can be quite hurtful in the moment to hear that stuff. And that's kind of that's kind of quite similar to the way you're kind of describing the parent has to set the boundary out of love, but that boundary for the child in that moment doesn't seem like a very loving thing. But actually, yeah. as as you say, uh, you know, in retrospect, or you kind of look back and you're really grateful for for that tough love because that's what prepares you for the for the world. Because the world isn't gonna allow you to do everything you want and kind of cuddle you every every time something goes wrong. Like the world is harsh. Definitely, and, definitely. And I yeah, think, but... like you say, it's clearly it's clearly done a lot of good for you. I mean, it makes sense in terms of like the way you the way you conduct yourself and present yourself. I mean, listeners won't know, but um, viewers might. You know, you, you always like to keep yourself quite, quite smart, quite looking quite good. <laughs> like, you know, like, like I know you've just got a trimmer or whatever you call it for your, to <laughs> your beard. But you, it always seems like you before you got that yourself, you're always, whenever I met you, was 
just really well groomed. I don't know how else to describe it. I, I, <laughs> I really want to stress that it's not out of vanity, but I really respect for the person or the people that I'm going to meet. Mm. Um, so I, I really want to set an example and show that not only verbally, but also visually that I've come here and, you know, dress nice in, in respect, out of respect for you. So I really don't want to. No, no. I don't think really... it's a vanity thing. It can be. Okay. <laughs> you know, well, don't, don't yeah. get me wrong. Like definitely people can be a bit narcissistic sometimes, but, but I think presenting yourself well, and it's something that I've taken a little bit of, a little bit of inspiration from you seeing that kind of approach and actually going, okay, why, why don't I like look after myself a little bit more? Like I know you have a skin routine, like a, <laughs> a skin routine and stuff. And it's yeah. made me question like crumbs. I don't, I barely even like, I wash my face probably like when I'm in the shower and that's it. And mm. may, maybe there are things I could be doing to look after myself, but also present myself. And yeah. like, I mean, like you say, it's like in a respectful way. I think in that sense as well, it's, it's the, the, the skincare thing, how, how the sort of, minute or uh, silly it might seem it's it's really really impacts me mentally in the sense that it's a routine it's the thing you do it's the same as going to the gym and I feel every time I do it my my mind is just a lot clearer and I just feel a lot ready to sort of seize the day I guess and in a sort of cringy way but that's that's how you know that's the way I sort of view it and also it's it's, it's nice having good skin I guess as well (laughs) (laughs) Um, but that's that's the way I see it anyway. Hopefully, I didn't sound too pretentious or cringy, but that's just no, no, you know. no. I, I think hopefully people listening to this, yeah, you, know, you definitely appreciate that things like you say, making your bed, cleaning your room, making sure you present yourself well, looking after yourself. It's all very basic stuff, but the simple things need to be done, and so many people disregard them because they are the simple things. So yeah, I think if you if you nail the basics, then you know it's just a building Foundation. blocks to then yeah. yeah exactly it's the foundation so yeah. what, one thing i was actually gonna say it segues quite nicely into the more recent years and how i've sort of come to know you by by sort of following the few bits i have done on instagram and, and what you what you've shared one of those things is is trading and investing and and your routines and things but you sort of tell me how you navigated the world post sick form what is it that you've kind of been interested in pursuing and then what have you been what you've been up to in the last few years we kind of touched on it a little bit but more more in mm. detail how that kind of mm. links to the or going to the cinema when you were three and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> well, um, after sixth form, I went to <laughs> um, Stirling University to study accounting for approximately four days and decided I don't really want to, I don't really see myself doing this. I knew I liked writing. Well, I loved writing, but at the same time, I wasn't ready to take the plunge. So I thought I'll do, I'll choose the safest option because, you know, the year prior, I started getting involved in in, um, trading and stocks and all of that. But yeah, so I left Stirling University after four days. If my parents are listening, they weren't too too pleased about that. Um, They were very supportive, but in the sense that they had to drive from Bournemouth to, to, uh, to Stirling which uh, was a, a painful drive. Well, and, it's us in Scotland, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so it's, 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 uh, it's fairly far away, <laughs> uh, one might say. Um, 
I chose script writing to do at Bournemouth University because at, the, at that time I was writing my, I think, my second feature script. And I don't think I was, uh, I, I, I knew why. And I think I did it for a year and a half. And I sort of realised that I could just do this as a side thing whilst, you know, I don't know, be, uh, being a, a banker or an investment, investment banker. Because I was still very much interested in trading in stocks. So um, after I chose economics, so I did the classical, the, the classic sort of, sort of artist, I'm sure of his passion thing and sort of ditched his passion and went for the sort of monetary side of things. And I did that for, I think, a year or just over a year. And to be, to be honest, I um, got like a, a first, which is good, I guess. But at the same time, I really, really just did not see myself doing that for the rest of my life. So I left. And it was really at that point that I just did not know what to do. And I guess I realised that I don't have one passion, but I've got a multitude of passions. Thought to myself, well, I like writing, so let's, let's find a job in that sort of area. And um, yeah, I ended up at Zest as a sort of digital marketer, a uh, copywriter, basically. Um, and that's where I am now. Now I know what I want to do, but um, it's it's not really like a job you can apply for being a um, an author. So, yeah. Yeah, wh- wh- where did that come about? Because we we spoke a little bit about the the cinema stuff and how you kind of fell in love with the narrative and the, the storytelling. But when did you sort of come across that actually writing yourself was something that you really enjoyed? Was it like during school or like reading, and then that inspired you to write? Or when was that? To be honest, it's funny because I've never been a really big reader. Well, when I was d- during secondary school, I think I realised this sort of love for it was during uh, probably sixth form, I guess, year 12, where just out of the blue, I didn't, I, I didn't know why, I just started writing a poetry collection. Again, you could ask me now, I, I just didn't know, I just started writing just out of, I guess, curiosity, or I don't know, I just liked the words that, that were popping in my head about the things I was seeing. And I just started writing it, and after a while, I, I, I finished it and published it, blah, blah, blah. And then I thought, okay, that was that was fun let's let's write a short story i guess and then that sort of like trickled down into writing a feature script and then writing a second script uh, feature script and i think the moment i really realized that this this is what i want to do was two two o'clock in the morning my room was pitch black my eyes were black holes because i've been staring at the computer for the past four hours writing one page and I sort of just looked around and realised this has got to be it, right? Like, I'm completely, completely shattered, both internally and externally. And yet, I am loving this. <laughs> completely, just completely enamoured with this whole, this whole science of storytelling. Was that after you wrote your your thing that was on Amazon? Like, sorry, I can't, I can't remember the name of it. But no, no, honestly, neither do I. I don't remember the name of it. It was really long. <laughs> was really it pretentious? Uh, yes, it was after. I think it was a good year and a half after it. Okay, because that, that's um, the first thing that I remember of you, really, like distinctly in my mind, is seeing you produce poems on Instagram and little standards of 
of these these words, these musings that you'd kind of dreamt up and written down. And I remember seeing like hundreds of likes on Instagram through the hashtags and stuff. I was thinking, Crumb, this, this guy's blowing up for his like his ability to to write and to dream of the narrative. And I, it it really interested me, but not in the same way as it would now. Like obviously, like I, that was three maybe four years ago i don't know yeah um it, it, oh yeah and the poetry by the way it sold approximately 20 copies uh <laughs> it's not bad not bad though you know uh new york times bestseller list here i can come <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, um sorry what was your question again I, I went in a tangent again what i'm trying to get at is <laughs> what is it about the the narrative that has made mm. you love it i mean that that's the question which which I want to know, which I'm sure people yeah. people listening will, will want to know. Like, what is it about it that that really hasn't has captured your your whole your whole being? That's that's the question I asked myself at the start of the year, and I was reading a book by Zadie Smith. Zadie Smith. I'm not sh- not too sure, but I'm sure I'm sure the listeners would know who she is. She wrote White Teeth. And it was a memoir she wrote during the uh, during COVID. And there's a, a particular quote, which I'm paraphrasing here, but why, you know, what interests, what interested you to write? What interests you to write? What continues to interest you to write? And why do you write? And she said, so simple. It's something to do. And I found that so beautiful. It's just something to do. It's this big thing, this inexplicable thing. And yet when you sort of peel it down, it just, it's just something to do on this, you know, while I'm alive, I guess, while we're all alive. It's just something so tethered to our DNA. Like we've been telling ourselves stories since we can even speak. We have to draw it and, you know, on caves. So it's always been there. Hopefully I haven't disappointed anyone, but it's just... It's just something to do, I guess. But in another sense, in poetry anyway, because when you're writing poetry, you're putting everything that you are, all your, all of your beliefs, all of your disbeliefs, in that moment in time, in that, into that poem, into those words. And I think I realised in my personal experience, in retrospect, a poem is a hypothesis in the sense that those words that you wrote down during that period of your life about grief, about love, they were true during that time to you, but maybe in a couple years time, they won't be. And I find that so fascinating because it's such, it's it's another way of just laying down who you are during a certain point of your life. Instead of sort of becoming a journal, a poem is so universal. And that's why I think poems and just art in general, really, to be honest, is a thing that should be shared. It's a form of intimacy, of sorry, of, of vulnerability. Because, and, and uh, sorry if I'm going on a tangent here, but which brings me up to, to another aspect of writing, creativity in general, again, to be honest. Vulnerability as an artist, I found, again, this is my personal experience, is your superpower in the sense that you can plot the most perfect story, murder mystery possible, but if it doesn't have honesty, that trueness, it just won't resonate with 
the reader, like a um, book I've just read recently, On Earth, You're Briefly Gorgeous, which is about a Vietnamese son who's writing a letter to his mother who can't read. And it it's about his struggles, her and his and her struggles during the, um, the fall of Saigon. And it's so vulnerable and so raw. And that's, that's an artist's power, is, is his or hers vulnerability. And it's such an interesting thing, the word uh, vulnerability, because if you break it down, vulnera, which, you know, if you track it back to the Greek translation means wound. And obviously wound to us is something weak. But how do you take care of a wound? Obviously, you can take care of it yourself. In a way, when you take care of a wound, you get to know yourself a bit more. You, towards the end of the process, you, under, you now understand what you had to do to get to heal that wound. The different things you tried, but it didn't work out, and the other things that worked. And in the other, it's sort of the, the other dimension of it, of, of the definition, you go to a person, you ask them, could you take care of this wound for me please i don't know what to do please and i think that to me is is what vulnerability is is such such an innate part of who we are it's the way we communicate you know if you talk for if you talk to a person for 30 minutes the things you remember won't be what they ate that day or what they did that day but sort of the, the emotions they felt and I think we really, again, my, my personal experience, like I really think we should destigmatize vulnerability as being this thing you should push away because it's who we are. We're all vulnerable. Why are we pushing this, our true selves away? And it's such a, the way I see it, it's such a dangerous thing because what if you push it away so much that you lose who you are and you don't really know how to communicate anymore? Again, if you break the word down, vulnerable, obviously, means endangered and weak. But at the same time, if you look at the synonym of vulnerable, it's open. The word open. And that's what I think it really needs to be. It's this sense of openness. It's the sense of not being encaged. It's realising we're all we're all, we're all, we're all broken and weak and lost and everything. But at the same time, the only way we can sort of unearth it is just to talk to another person and sort of just share our experiences. And that's, I think that's why storytelling to me is such a powerful thing, because you're seeing someone, a director, a writer, an artist, laying down their doubts, their beliefs, Again, their disbeliefs, their worries, and none of it can be true, you know, but it's true to them. It's honest to them. And how, and this is the most important part as well. The most personal is always just the most visceral, the most emotional, the best a work of something can be because it came from you. It came from, you know, you ripped your heart out and laid it on the page or you, you, you know, you put it on film and it can't get more raw or honest than that. The worst thing you can do is make something that doesn't have, you know, that you, you try to fabricate in order to satisfy everyone. At the end, you won't, you know, satisfy anyone because it's fabrication. It's 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 a fugazi. It's it's not real. It's nothing. You know, I hope that didn't sound cringy, but that's what it is. Like it's right. really just laying 
your heart out on that canvas, on that page, on, you know, on that film, communicating with another person or people. I think that's, uh, that's, that's such a, it's such a beautiful way to describe storytelling. And I, I think, I mean, you mentioned there that it's not necessarily objectively true or whatever, but but it's but it's real. I think there is that that narrative truth because it's almost more true than than the objective kind of scientific testable <laughs> truths that we see, like gravity. Yeah, everyone knows gravity is true, but mm. you know what? More than knowing gravity is true, we know that love is true. Like each of us knows what heartbreak feels like. Each of us knows what. Or feels like see a beautiful sunrise, or you are fortunate enough to travel and, and see an, an amazing view in front of you, mountain mountain tops. And I think those things are far more real to us than something like gravity, which is correct. But I think the fact that artists, like you say, are vulnerable, and I love I love the way you broke that down. Um, thanks for doing that. Really gave me a sense of that universal truth that we all know without having to think about it, if that makes sense. It's just mm. it's just innate. I think that's there's something so powerful about that. And it it kind of we almost disregard that side of ourselves at our own peril. Again, to try and take what you've said there and kind of look at it in terms of the world and people's broader opinions and culture, it seems to me like we're losing touch with that side of things. Like there's still artists and there's still people producing great works, like great literary works and great, great scripts. And of course, now we, we go to great big productions in cinema and we go and watch Marvel films and, you know, we, we can't wait for the next chapter of some Netflix show to come out. But I think in, in the deepest sense, we're losing that sense of beauty of, yeah, of that expression of feeling. Everything's being cheapened, right? Like, it's just mm. it's, it's like like a cheap love song, which you can you can distinguish when someone's written a song of heartbreak from the heart, and when it's just been kind of crafted because someone looks very attractive and fits the model, and then they can become a, a famous singer. Um, exactly just that. To sell to the masses whilst they all get their hearts broken. So it's funny you should mention that because I was thinking about that today. James Blunt and Ed Sheeran, and why one is more successful than the other. Because I listened to James Blunt's Monsters. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's a fantastic, fantastic song, that is. I learned it on the the piano and did a duet a couple years ago. That song touched me like no other. Yeah, and and I was just thinking about it, like breaking it down and sort of, okay, so why is one more successful than the other? And I sort of, okay, it's probably... I guess let's say the lyrics. What define lyrics then, Guy? Define what you mean by lyrics. Well, okay, let's say which one is more is catchier. Probably say Ed Sheeran. And then I was like, okay, on the other side of the spectrum, what if you know what? what which one is, is most honest and true? And it was just obvious that it was James Blunt. But at the same time, that we like you said. Everything is just so neutered down and fake, you know, that we rather go for something that's catchy where we don't really know what it means, but it just, you know, it rolls off the tongue. Everyone else, to... everyone else is listening and chanting these things in nightclubs, exactly. so, so I'll do exactly. it as well. Exactly, compared to something where, where an artist is literally breaking his heart in front of you because his father has been just di- has been diagnosed with mm. stage four 
cancer and someone listens to it and says, oh, so depressing. I don't want that. And I'm like, okay, okay. And I'll re- and to be honest, I don't really know what to say to that. Just, you know, apart from just sigh. It's the cynicism just, of it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's again, I think it comes down to sort of the vulnerability aspect of it. We, we want to shield that away as much as possible. We That's want exactly to be, what I was going to pick up on. Yeah. That's exa- yeah. precisely and, uh, and I find it so it's like, we sort of, we we latch on to anything that sort of kills that sort of sense of vulnerability in ourselves. You know, just look around, like the increase of drug use, of suicide. It's obviously I don't have the facts to back it up. I'm just going by my by my own personal experience. But it's got to have some link to this sense of shielding and of numbing a way of trying to figure yourself out or your trauma um can i can i just can i just go off on a limb here and i'm just trying to like piece it together because i think there's a there's a general picture that i'm trying to build in my mind here and i might not articulate it in the best way but yeah from what you've shared about the influences you've had in your life and kind of shaped you to who you are now and then talking about the things which we agree on here and that you've very much pursued in terms of your the whole narrative world which i'm dipping my toes into but i completely appreciate and, and love and i uh, honestly I, i'm in awe listening to your descriptions of that it really is and I, I hope i hope other people are appreciating it as much as i am too but the way i'm sort of piecing it together and you can you can say if it's it's not exactly true but what i see is if you have kind of boundaries and security then it allows you to be vulnerable and to lean into that and explore what that means so if you have this if you have like this annoying discipline imposed on you and like we were talking about earlier with with your with your stepdad when he kind of came into your life and and it's obviously very challenging for you to see why the merits of the saying no at the time but then as you've grown in appreciation for that those boundaries but 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 what comes along with that is the security in terms of the financial security or the the just feeling safe in who you are as well then allows you to feel like you can express yourself and express your vulnerability in a healthy way where that's going to be well received by people around you and okay i might be piecing it together incorrectly here and i'm just kind of picking two things together which which aren't really related but potentially then if you see people now like the copes that people go to in terms of sex, drugs, alcohol, porn, whatever it might be, uh, and we each kind of have our downfalls in each aspect of those things that we that we struggle mm. with. But but people that really fall susceptible to those things, as you're sort of suggesting, they, they can't really be be vulnerable. Maybe it's because they 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 never had the opportunity or that space or that security to feel like they could lean into and be vulnerable into. Therefore, you know, the more you sort of shut that off and the more that you you don't feel like you can share those things, the more likely you are to then just try and cope and mm. try and do it all on your own and, and use temporary highs as a way to numb that feeling. Because, I mean, everyone appreciates that, that, or maybe not everyone appreciates, but I, I think we certainly appreciate how tough life can be. And the way, the way Jordan Peterson describes it is like life is suffering, like Mm. and it is in its kind of base state and then it's it's understandable to see why people would 
would turn to cynicism and be bitter with life and be, yeah, turn to these things to kind of get by. But then again, it, it's like if, if you have that space to be vulnerable and it can be being vulnerable with friends, it can be vulnerable with family, it can be being vulnerable with God. If you have that kind of comfort to lean into, then maybe that stops you from going down that path. I mean, it might not particularly relate to you in terms of having the your your stepfather to be able to lean into in that way and then having the views you do now. But I'm just trying to piece it together now and I'm just kind of thinking out loud. Mm. But maybe it's true, maybe it's not. Maybe it's just something to think about and, and philosophize <laughs> over. Um, no, I, I, I think I see what you mean in the sense that you just want to cultivate a sort of dialogue where vulnerability is just said without a doubt sort of like in the sense like without sort of like stuttering before you know saying it in a sense where it's welcomed is that what you're saying sorry yeah kind of like like with like with my friends hopefully you know if you're listening to this you you, you can appreciate I, I i like and i would encourage people to share things that have got going on in their lives as i take liberty in sharing stuff stuff that i've got going on because because I I appreciate and I've kind of recognised in my life when you have that security and trust in people, then you can be vulnerable and then that that can stop you or aid you in in terms of turning away from those things. That because I think the most the most damaging things are the things that we find it hard to be vulnerable about. Are the things we we don't talk about because we because if we talk about it, you know, it's kind of a taboo thing. Like like for a time for me it was porn. Like I, I didn't want to. It's not something you want to openly share with with anyone. It's it's embarrassing. You feel like it's it's awful, and I mean it is. But yeah, it's having sorry. a space to be vulnerable in that then allows you to actually confront the problem rather than just not engaging with it. Anyway, going off on on a bit of a tangent. But... No, 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 I went I went on a tangent. You you have every right to. Yeah, but, um, I think yeah that there is that. That, that lack of, of feeling vulnerable and the cope with that people have gone down these other paths and then it's not working out very well i would in my estimate oh 100 yeah 100 but it's, it's such a shame because you know the other part of vulnerability you know the ability and you, if, you know if you go on google and you search ability the synonym that comes up is power you know, it's a power. It's it's vulnerability is a power, and we're sort of shielding that power away. The power to show your wound to other people, you know, who also have that wound, mm. because everyone has that wound. That's awesome. So, so I know that more more recently, I've seen this summer, you've gone a few different countries in Europe, and you've actually been back to Brazil and stuff. What's it been like re- reconnecting and going back to Brazil uh, now as a, as a twenty one year old? And and also, what I guess it's a two part question, but What's it been like traveling Europe as a writer? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, the first part of the question, um, I was super nervous to go to Brazil because, you know, that sort of sense, that sort of sense of being lost in terms of culture was sort of really kicking in in my brain. I'm like, I felt like a fraud going back there. And, you know, I talked to my mum and said, I'm scared. Like, you know, I, I can barely talk the language and I'm going there by myself, you know, uh, I'm scared. And she said, don't be scared. Once you set your feet on, on the ground and sort of take it in, the roots will start to bloom again. 
at that other time she said that I, I i really didn't take it in to be honest i just said yeah sure okay whatever it's something you say to your son when she's scared but after spending nine days there i did have a moment where i saw i was at the church my my uncle goes to the service was going and i sat there and the fan was going and it was hot and humid and i was hearing my people speak and not hearing an ounce of of sort of the english dialect around i i i to be honest, I, I, I felt like I was home. I generally didn't want to leave because I felt like, it's going to sound cringy, but it's just where it felt like this is where I belong. Why, why have I been feeling like a fraud this whole time? And it's funny as well, because after nine days, my sort of accent was sort of maturing and becoming stronger. And <laughs> I, I really can't put into words how relieved and happy I was because of that so yeah that was probably like the highlight of of my year was to go back home and realize that yeah you know you're still Brazilian (laughs) it's not gonna leave you um and the second part sorry the second part of your um question yeah it was pretty good (laughs) it was it was pretty it was pretty good because when you when you think of a writer you think of a person who's who's been places who's lived you know seen some stuff and I needed that so much. Um, so to travel and see the, the amazing wonders that God created. <laughs> I remember so distinctly being Lake Como, um, swimming in the water. It was transparently with a tinge of blue, cyan. And the sky was, oh my goodness, it was... It was blue and, and clouds were nowhere to be seen. The mountains were just all around you. They didn't really feel like like mountains. They felt like flowers in a weird sense. But And I just stopped and looked around. And I, and I just said out loud, I said, God, you're so amazing. I was, spe- uh, to be honest, I was on the verge of tears because it was just the sheer beauty of of just witnessing that it's just indescribable and you know it was one of those moments where words just become so weak just so weak you don't want to you don't want to put things into words you just want to feel and it was one of those moments where i just wanted to feel i'll just remember that moment for the you know the rest of my life because it was just I was just in awe of God's perfection because sometimes you take it for granted, you know, you're sort of sitting in your garden, you're sort of, you know, on your, on your chair, you know, the sun is out and you're sort of reading a book, but you don't really appreciate it. And I think going back to the writing aspect of it, I think as, as a writer, you want to romanticize life, but not in the sense, in, in the fake sense, in the sense that you just want to bring the things that you take for granted up and say, hey, these things are really great. Sometimes you don't have to travel half of the world to, to see something beautiful. Sometimes you just have to look out the window and just truly see something for what it is and appreciate it. Just being in that place, just I just felt closer to God. It was just one of those things. But yeah, sorry. Yeah. No, it's powerful, powerful truth that you're sharing there. And I, I remember you sharing that, that story the last time I saw you when, when we were in church, midway through August, I think it was. And I then went to to france and i went well i went to france a couple of weeks after that and i remember being in rouen and seeing these cathedrals and seeing what what beauty we've created but then also the the creation that we've tried we've tried to in our best attempt 
construct the incredibly, incredibly intricate buildings in attempt to try and glorify God. I think that the sense of wanting to create something beautiful comes comes from like that bit of us that's tethered with God. Because I, I really do think, obviously not all poetry, but you know, um, the poetry that I read feels just like a another way of just glorifying god and, I, and it's such it's such a shame as well because people think that art is a luxury which fair enough it is you know it's no one has the time to go to the west end or watch a film every night or read a book and sit down you know they've got children to take care of to they got work and all of that but until a relative dies and you know they, they sort of they sort of need something to sustain them and i think poetry is su- this is why poetry is, is still such a t- it's such a timeless thing because i, I watched a, uh, a lecture a couple months ago of a, of a person who lost his wife in a car accident and he was saying how dante's inferno helped him sort of cope with that grief of that loss of walking through that dark forest coming out that stronger and and it's so interesting because that book it came out 500 400 years ago and yet it's still having such an impact on people to me it, it just shows how po- the power of poetry is, is it's not really exactly necessarily in its you know in in its blunt intention but more truly great beautiful poetry comes from suggestion eight people can read in line and have eight different interpretations and that's really beautiful and that's what i think real really beautiful poetry is hopefully i haven't i feel like i've i go in like tangents no, i'm really sorry like... no 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 I, I think it's um i think what you're sharing is really speaking quite profoundly uh, i just think it's such an underrepresented thing in, in in culture and what people talk about and people's interests like the, the you you've kind of inspired me to kind of read more and it's something that's silly because as children and for basically all of the last few hundred years as we've become more privileged and edu- to be able to be literate and educated and read and write it's one of the things that's treasured you know we we had, uh, I think it was the first, the first ever mass-produced book was the Bible, and it was mm-hmm. thought that that should be given to everyone. And it was quite a quite a struggle hundreds of years ago to to finally get to the point where you can print things on mass. And the kind of the richer classes didn't necessarily want that to happen initially because you empower the the peasants <laughs> because you then they can learn and start to think for themselves and start to question things. But I think it's a shame that something which is so deeply profound and so important as we're kind of talking about is is now being swept aside with the with the age of the the mobile phone and, and the dopamine and the instant gratification that we get from things and kind of it, it speaks to kind of the things that we've been discussing on, on the podcast so far and kind of thinking about the simplicity of reading and writing and how much we take that for granted so much that we that as a culture we're almost disregarding it and favoring being on our phones not really reading anything of any meaning and also not really creating anything of any meaning in what we're doing. And that's, that's, that's ultimately why, why I wanted to have this chat is because I find the way that you've reconnected with that and found your passion for that is, is, is way more profound on a human, on a human level than I've had many other, like it's one of the more, the deepest connection I've heard when I've been t- talking with people 
is the way you've been able to describe your love and your sense of purpose through this seems so more like you really know it rather than people convincing mm. themselves that that other things are their patterns, hobbies, or meaning. Like this just seems so right to me and it's odd that it's so rare, if that makes sense. Right. Yeah. Um okay. and I, I I think it's I think it's fantastic. To sort of move to to looking at kind of where we're at now and kind of all the experiences you're you're just describing and the journey you've been through in terms of kind of discovering what it is and who you are and, and what you're about to bring you to the present moment just to throw it out there what what does your what does your day-to-day routine look like now and how does it incorporate the things we've discussed in terms of literally like summing everything up like you know going to the gym and like storytelling and reading and looking after yourself like what does that look like now well um i usually get up at six o'clock have a little alarm and then i try to read for minimum half an hour to an hour so I wake and then so I, you know, I, I leave the bed at seven seven o'clock after reading for an hour and after that i have a shower do my skincare then go to the gym i really i really 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 recommend going to the gym in the morning because it's it just sets you up for the day you just feel energized and not even that but you just you you feel like you've already achieved something you know and that sort of causes sort of a domino effect of you achieve something then you achieve something it's, you know it's it's sort of interlinked. And also at the end of the day, when you finish work, you don't have to go, oh, I still have to go to the gym. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know? um, which I've been there many times. And oh, it is a sh- oh, it is honestly like trying to pull a truck, trying to go to the gym after work. Um, it's like you either com- you either keep the momentum rolling completely or yeah. you, you, you can't you can't like get home from work and sit down for five minutes. Otherwise, that's game over. You're not getting up. <laughs> so, exactly. I think by doing it in exactly. the morning, it keeps the momentum rolling. Yeah, and it's and it, usually it's quieter in the morning than the evening. Yeah, in the evening it, it, it further desensitizes you to work out because everyone's using the machines, and you're like, ah, I could just go home. You know, what's the point? <sighs> you know, and your mind starts starts making excuses. Start and... to negotiate with yourself. It's like exactly you're precisely right there <laughs> it's very hard to uh, negotiate with yourself so yeah so after work six ish probably read some more you should be reading like a book or two books a week i try to wow. um but but the, the thing is though it's when you know what books you like it's, it comes pretty naturally it's it's this i think it's the same as sort of you going on a bike ride in the sense that you Again, I might be wrong, but in the sense that you sort of know what you have to do, you know sort of the routes you have to take, you need to take, you want to, I don't know, and, and I, to me that's how I sort of see it in your shoes, but again, I don't know what, what in, how do yeah, you sort I, of... I suppose so, it's like you're, you're familiar with where you want to go, you know what the plan yeah. is in terms of like, if you're doing any like high intensity interval training or or how long you're going for and you, it's all kind of planned out and you yeah well once you become familiar with something you know why you're there to do it and yeah exactly that yeah. exactly that exactly that. that's exactly what you just yeah that's exactly what i was trying to say you just said it there um but yeah and then after that i'll probably try to do a few hours on the piano um yeah that, that's something i was going to talk about actually <laughs> let's let's delve into it right now um oh no <laughs> yeah do you want to explain yeah so i've i've tried I've started, sorry, uh, learning the piano. 
um, just out of curiosity, to be honest, because I've always been fascinated with music and my family, especially. I think it's really come from my family because my uncle can play the guitar, my English uncle can play the guitar, my granddad can play、uh, could play the saxophone. It's beautiful as well because we've we've had this, we sort of carried a sax saxophone around for the past like twenty years as sort of like a is urn, like it, it's like you know him. That's inside it. It's, it's strange, but anyway, yeah, I've, I've tried. I've started to play the piano, and、um, I've been tracking it, sort of taking videos of myself and putting it on Instagram just to keep myself accountable. Again, I I really just love learning and just creativity in general. And I thought, why not? You know, it's, it's... exactly. If there's anything that anyone is putting off, the the day to start is always today.、Um, and I I think、yeah. it's. It's it's obviously increasingly hard to start something new as you get older. Like obviously, that's why you're encouraged to try and do as many different things as you can when you're younger to to figure things out and pick up habits quickly. And like I'm very lucky that I learned the piano from when I was like seven or eight, and I kind of I can rely on the fact that it's kind of muscle memory. Obviously, I need to learn as well, but it's been it's been really interesting seeing seeing your like your approach as someone who's now an adult. Then learning it for almost different reasons, but more like more meaningful reasons to actually like express that that side of yourself. And I mean, it makes sense. It makes sense why you're learning the piano. As someone who who thinks in the narrative a lot of the time with with script writing and poetry and and reading reading and kind of immersing yourself in that, it makes sense to also have that like that outlet of sound and what that can what what those emotions that that sound can have in people, which again is. It's very difficult to rationalise in any scientific way.、Mm-hmm. It's like why does why do certain chords sound like they're in key? Like why? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. We don't really like we, the brain is something we don't understand. And maybe someone can message me if I'm wrong here, but I'm convinced no one understands particularly why we can hear something and go, "That's beautiful," and I feel love. Or sadness when I hear a minor key, or something like yeah. that. Yeah, it's, and I, I think it's, it's, it's the same with it's, it's the same with poetry. It's like you can't you can't really put your finger on it. Maybe you don't need to. <laughs> Maybe you just、yeah. need to sit、it's, and listen or read or whatever it is and just feel it. It it's true. It's true though because the same applies to when you're reading a, a, a book and there's a passage and your brain just goes whoop. That's bad writing. It's almost like Going back to the, the music sort of、um, piano thing, it's like almost hearing a wrong note, a out of tune note. Your brain just knows it. That's just awful writing. Why? And I feel like that's such an interesting thing because music is that way as well. We, our brains just sort of go, huh? I don't know. I don't know. I went on a. No, no, no. It, again, it's something that's true, but not something we can prove to be true. It's just in the exactly, narr- exactly. in the narrative sense, we all feel it. It's a universal thing. Everyone knows when someone plays the wrong key in a concert. People that have had no musical experience whatsoever can just be like, "Oh, that doesn't sound nice to listen to." Who knows why?、Yeah. And we don't need yeah, to know.、Exactly. Yeah, we don't need to know why. We just need to learn to feel it again and reconnect with that side of ourselves, which I think,、exactly. which I think you're obviously doing. I'm trying to do as well, and I feel like it's it's so profoundly important that people do learn to. Reconnect with that side of, of their humanity. So, 
great discussions. Yeah. <laughs> I absolutely love the kind of roller coaster we've been on here and a quick brief whistle stop tour into the mind in, into your mind looking at your in, your influences growing up and how that all kind of just ties together to, to to where you find yourself today i think it's so important that we have real again vulnerable conversations about who each of us are and how everything has shaped us because there are so many things that i can learn from you that i can't learn in a textbook that vice versa like humans just talking about each other's experiences and passions and i think Primarily, that's the reason why I set this thing up is to is to have these kind of conversations and to invite other people to listen because we can all learn so much from each other in in our specific kind of niches. But I think what's particularly true about about yourself is the things that you found yourself in. I think everyone could benefit from doing a little bit more. For example, with with maybe another guest who has a particular they have they're like an accountant it's like yeah people can learn the, the rough messages but not everyone's going to go and be an accountant now i'm not saying yeah. everyone's suddenly going to be a, a poet what i'm saying is i think everyone can everyone would be better off society culture however you want to frame it would be better off if everyone read poetry and everyone kind of contemplated these things even for half an hour a week <laughs> Rather than yeah. just mindlessly consuming and not ever questioning things and being scared to be vulnerable and all these things we've been talking about, I think, I think really, really could be of a lot of value to people. So hopefully, ho- hopefully, there's some people still listening at this point. <laughs> yeah, it's been a long one. <laughs> Sorry, guys. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, um, no, it's, it's all good stuff, though. And ju- just to just to wrap up, then there's a, there's a couple more things I want to delve into. I mean, what 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 does the what does the future what does the future look like for you? Like, what are your ambitions and what do you hope to, what do you hope to achieve? Um, main goal is to publish my novel. Uh, that is the main goal. For some reason, I've set a deadline date of when I'm thirty. Again, I'm not sure why, and that's probably an erroneous thing to do, but that's what I've told myself. Um, that's a long that time. It's a long time, but again, it's, it's a deadline. I can do it before then. Uh, <laughs> sure. Yeah. Um, said no. Said no. University student ever. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no. If, but, if tomorrow um, isn't the due date, then today isn't the due date. That, that was the phrase. Exactly. I exactly. It'll be twenty-nine no, but, and um, three hundred and sixty-four days, and <laughs> it'll be a, a quick. <laughs> but the thing is, though, um, is that writers are usually pretty. Not, I don't want to say old, but they're they're not like. I think like athletes where when you're 30, you're sort of like, or 31, you're like, Oh, he's, yeah, you know, it's time to retire. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's interesting. Cause it's the other way around. Uh, the older you get as a writer, the, you know, you get better. The more you um, have to draw on. Exactly. Exactly that. And the more, yeah. Um, it's, that's, that's the goal is, is to, is to write a novel again. That's an arbitrary thing. I just said 30 because you know, it just sounds good in my head, I guess. I don't know. I might write it when I'm 26. I don't know. I'm just going to continue what I'm doing at the moment and just just read as much as I can and just be in tuned with just God's just amazing, amazing world that he's created and just write simpler. I think having that goal is so important. Like, as you say, yeah. even if it changes, having something to look towards that is kind of beyond what your current self is capable of 
it just gives you it's like having a compass it's like okay yeah all right let's 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 walk in that direction and see what happens i i think all power to you in that regard okay one of one of those other questions that uh, i want to be potentially cool. I, I feel like i should create um like a quick fire thing in my podcast where i like <laughs> ask all the same questions to each guest because i feel like you, it'd be a, a good way to round up right we're going to do ad hoc here so um, what would you tell given the lessons you know now what would you say to let's say 12 year old keep doing what you're doing so do, and... do you mean that in like in terms of you're just glad that everything that's happened has produced how you are today 100 percent, 100 percent, 100 percent. yeah that just so keep doing what happy, you're doing you're happy content with where you are now yeah yeah i think that's you know where where god wants me to be so yeah so to finish things have you i've asked this of every guest so far have you got any questions for me what makes you angry I think I can be angered in ways which aren't very helpful and I should work on. But I I think there's also anger within me which is justified that I need to channel in a in a in a healthy way. And I think mm. I think probably if I was gonna put it on one thing, what angers me most is people taking things for granted and being very being overly critical of the things that they should that aren't perfect, but that are good, if that makes sense. Uh, mm -hmm. So the example I'd probably use, let's say there's a there's a government, you know, government X, and the government has been formed over hundreds of years to provide stability to citizens to be able to live with incredible comfort compared to any previous generation of humanity whatsoever. Uh, like we find ourselves now, like we live in, ultimate abundance of comfort and privilege that's unheard of compared to pretty much every human that's lived before us yet we live in the most politically divisive unhappy and cynical culture imaginable is what i see like i see people constantly just saying how how everything is corrupted by tyranny and how everything is this big destructive patriarchy which just oppresses everyone and like there's elements of truth to it but people are so I get angry at people being angry at things that, that you know what I mean. Like a little, a little gratitude would be, would be nice. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, I get what you mean. It's like society nowadays. Like they see one thing wrong about someone, and they're like, "He is a demon. He is Satan. This is wrong. This is all wrong." You know that sort of thing. And it's like, no, things are complex. You know that it's not black and white. There is a grey area. You know. Nothing is perfect apart from God. Like, come on, man. You know, um, so it's just annoying. I completely understand you. Like, this, this, ang this anger towards society just being unable to rationalize things as being neither black or white. Did that make any sense? Yes. Oh, my brain's like, it's yes. sort of like melted. Then there's like a complete lack of pragmatism. It, it's incredibly frustrating when someone, when people. <laughs> Here's the thing, ideologies and a simple snap judgment is far easier and it probably sounds correct. Like it's very easy to just provide a quick answer that just kind of makes sense. But the thing that I've really wrestled with in the last few years is the fact that life is incredibly complex 
and questions have incredibly complex answers and yeah. that a lot of people try and explain things very simply, which sounds correct, which sounds moral and good, but actually it's no match for the complexity of life and it's just a cope. And then they're also very cynical and bitter and resentful towards the world and don't take anything and take everything for granted. And that whole kind of combination of things that I see, that just, that probably angers me more than anything else. And then people and kind of do. having a go at me for some of the views I hold when I'm like, you have no idea the greater context and, and the complexity at which I'm looking at life. And I'm not going to pretend to be like, I'm not pretentious in this. Like I have so much to learn. That's almost the point. I know that I don't know everything and that everything's complex and I'm trying to work it out. I'm trying to stumble through really contentious topics, but I, I'm not going to for one moment pretend to have the answer. I can't just be like, oh, this is wrong. This is right. That's something we should do. That's bad. It's like, I don't, I don't pretend to have the answers. <laughs> yeah, no, it's right. Do you think it's because most opinions are sort of presented on Twitter or on Instagram where it's really, you don't really get much room to say, to, to extrapolate how complex it is. So you just make like a snapped, a snap sort of opinion as, mm -hmm. as, as because, you know, the, the format doesn't really allow you to extrapolate any further in that sense. So people just grow accustomed to, uh, not accustomed, but maybe have comfort in like these short to the point, not, really taking into in, in, in consideration of other externalities sort of opinions and when someone like nick like, let's say you you make sort of a your sort of own opinion which doesn't really uh, align with the, the, the opinion of the left or the right whatever wing it is they don't really take into into, into consideration the complexities of it because you don't you didn't really have the opportunity to do so in a mm. way that's digestible to them or to the or to the way they usually digest their own information did that make any sense yeah it does it does there's sort of two parts to that uh what one but but one of it which i think is the point you're trying to get at is is the fact that with everything being so short form and and being uh, and the internet being a place of generally a force for good but also being a place where we have reels, which is just quick fire information. We have Twitter, which is like limited word box. Dialogue yeah. and conversation is all is all very quick and fast and reactive, and it's all designed that way. You know, no no one has the time to read the Communist Manifesto, to read Adam Smith, to read Nietzsche, to read Young, to read the greatest philosophies, philosophers, the people who have argued for each of the different human natures, to read the Bible, <laughs> um, to kind of understand like all of these complex things like no one has the, no, no one has the time for that we're all busy just trying to do life and therefore we just yeah. we, we, we just simplify things down to things that, that sound correct and actually yeah no no match no match yeah. for how complex life is these these kind of these kind of views but there is another yeah. part to that but yeah i could i could we could talk for a long time about this stuff but i I mean, the podcast is, the recording is currently on two and a half hours. So uh, <laughs> I'm going to have a job editing this. Uh, <laughs> yeah, sorry. But, 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 but I have, I, do, I absolutely do not regret uh, any, any minute of it, really. Um, yeah, same, same. It was really 
be nice. It's been really good. But yeah, th- thank you. Thank you so much for, for coming on and being so vulnerable as well. I know we we talked about vulnerability, but, but thanks for being vulnerable yourself because I, I think that's where people listening will really connect because we relate in those personal, those really personal ways. And hopefully people can yeah. find solace in it. So thank you very much. Thank you.